Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam, tune in. It's the injury every athlete fears. Associated with a central surgery and a year on the sidelines, a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament has a devastating effect on those who suffer it. With post-operative re-rupture rates as high as one in three, and just half of patients returning to their previous levels within two years, I'm on a mission to discover if there's a better way to recovery. And with the rise of women's sport unequally blighted by ACL injuries, I also want to know how we can prevent this often innocuous injury from occurring so frequently. I think I've found some solutions, but whispered them around surgeons. You might be able to return to the activity you love quicker without going under the knife. And hold on to your tin hats. We're now learning that a ruptured ACL can heal naturally. Join me as I speak to the professionals using groundbreaking research to lead the way in challenging the overdependency on surgery. Plus, hear from a raft of athletes who have already followed this alternative pathway, the non-operative. My name's Tim Clement, and I'm a former sports journalist with a reignited desire to share a story I think needs telling. I'm a rare case in that I've returned to sport from ACL ruptures twice using two different pathways via reconstructive surgery and rehabilitation alone. So I'm hoping to share a balanced view to those trying to decide which option is right for them. But also from my experience of returning to football in under five months without surgery, I'm now questioning why the vast majority of ACL injuries are still being treated under the knife. I begin sharing my journey by introducing you to the physio who helped me through my recent comeback, Rick Whitehead. Rick had previously helped me overcome another dreaded injury, the middle-aged athlete's calf strain. His modern research-centered approach gave me confidence that he was the right person to support my seemingly impossible aim of returning to sport in the same season I ruptured my ACL. Here is our non-operative ACL comeback story. Rick, would you like to start by telling listeners about your experience of working with ACL injuries and um, more specifically mine? Yes, uh, I guess there's been a, a couple of things I've worked with you over the last couple of years there with, but um, I guess my background is, of course, I work as a physiotherapist I'm primarily based out of the sports injury clinic there in Frankston in Melbourne, Australia. And I guess in terms of other roles I have on the side, I tend to do a fair bit of work with, with football injuries there. So I'm associated with Football Victoria and a bit of work with Football Australia in there, the Paralympic teams. I guess um, in terms of my, my involvement, there were knee-specific injuries. Of course, my sporting teams, I'd have some involvements there. Um, not, not so much necessarily of ACL injuries there, Touchwood, fortunately, but um, I guess from a clinical sense, um, a 
ACL injury is something that I would see quite frequently over at the sports injury clinic. And um, I guess engaging in that decision-making process shared between the, the athlete, my, myself and the doctor is something that I guess I am regularly involved with, but, but quite often the first time I'll have interaction with a person there is maybe once they're two or three weeks down the line, a decision's already been made there for surgery to be done, which a lot of the time I think it's absolutely the right decision. But um, with, with that being said, sometimes there are some people who aren't necessarily necessarily looking to get back to a, a, an active sporting lifestyle there, or maybe necessarily it's an isolated injury where the tears in a good location where sometimes I'm wondering if in retrospect was jumping straight to surgical management necessarily the the right way to go from the get-go there. Yep. Great stuff. Um, and we're going to go for a few quick fire um, questions just to, I guess, get the listeners to a perspective understanding what we're going to discuss today and, and what kind of perspective you're bringing to this um, conversation. So we're going to start with the first statement, and I want to draw a false from you, or you can sit on the fence if you really want to, but I know, I know you're too competitive to get that. Um, so the first statement is, you can't return to pivoting sport so, as you mentioned, football, such soccer, yep. um, basketball, rugby, the likes, um, yep. without an ACL. I, I think that's that's false. You, you can absolutely return to pivoting sports without an ACL. Okay. Um, having surgery um, post an ACL rupture guarantees you better overall outcomes than rehab alone. I may have to sit on the fence for that one there. I think okay. um, we'll get into the get into your your full answer there. No problems. And um, okay, only certain patients are suitable for rehab over surgery, dependent on their situation. That's true. Um, you can return to sport quicker via the non-operative pathway. So rehab alone can get back quicker through rehab alone. Absolutely true. Um, a few more for you. Strength and conditioning rehab is the most important factor in a successful return to sport after an ACL rupture. In most cases, absolutely true. And appropriate strength and conditioning is the most important factor in reducing the risk of an ACL rupture. True. Absolutely true. And final one, this is this is really the, the controversial one. Um, the ACL has the capacity to heal after rupturing. It can heal after rupturing, no, no doubt in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good to hear. And we'll go through, you know, the the purpose of that is really to set the scene for the listener on what we're going to be discussing um, today. Um, so you you were my physio. I came to you after getting my diagnosis um, for rupturing my ACL. Um, had a grade two um, tear to my MCL and a grade one LCL, bit of bruised bone, yep. and. Um, so that's why I thought it'd be fantastic to get you on because uh, we're really approaching this subject um, from initially my experience of, of having two ACL ruptures at each knee and having um, the two different approaches. I had surgery on my right knee and rehabilitated without surgery on my left knee. And you supported me, which I'm always going to be very grateful for, to return to playing football or, or soccer to the to the native listeners <laughs> in, in, in Australia. Um in less than five months, which is which is pretty incredible um, achievement. For, I like to think for us for us both. What kind of what, what, when I came into the the clinic and I was probably 
pretty down at the, at the time um, and, and scratching around for the best way to go. Um, what kind of made you assess me as a suitable candidate for the rehab non-operative pathway? I guess the the first things we were looking at was, I guess, one, there was an ACL tear that was present. But um, with, with that being said, we wanted to have a look at some of the other associated injuries with the knee and whether it was something that could be rehabbed well in the first place. So, um, for instance, we have the meniscus, which is a layer of cartilage which sits in the knee there. Sometimes when there's certain forms of tears within that cartilage, for instance, a, a bucket handle meniscus tear, and it's resulting in some significant clicking or locking in the knee, and things aren't moving quite smoothly, that, that can also be an indicating factor that surgery is the way to go. Because the concern would be is if we keep getting those... I guess, locking occurrences to happen, that the risk can be sometimes that we're lifting up more and more of that cartilage and causing bigger issues with arthritic change, among other things there down the line. Fortunately for you, that that wasn't a factor. The, the other stuff that we consider, which may make rehab a, a bit more difficult or alternatively may change the things that we do in the first place, were the degrees of the injuries to other structures in the knee there as well. Like you were saying before, we found there was a grade two tear to the, the MCL that was present on, on imaging, but fortunately on testing of those structures clinically, things appeared quite stable. Mm. If there was a, a large injury that was present and things weren't overly stable, maybe it could be something where we would have looked to put you in a brace in those early stages to help that ligament heal up a bit better on its own before pushing things harder. And then fortunately, as far as the injury to the LCL there was concerned, it also was really, really stable. So the, the main thing that was left for us was a matter of waiting for the swelling that was still present for your knee to come down. Then once things are looking good on that front, starting to get you onto a graded strength and conditioning program to get you back to where you are now. Yeah. Um, and I guess we should, we should mention um, really for the balance there that this isn't a decision that either of us make and that's done right it's Not a monitoring situation so we caught up every two weeks and the first question was you know have you had any episodes of instability in the knee how's it feeling and um it was always a case that we reconsider that and i think that's probably one of the important messages that we want people to take away is like considering non-optive management doesn't mean dis um removing the, the the idea of surgery that's always there and i guess that was something that i was always aware of i didn't want surgery mm-hmm. and i i was always every time i took my body to a different kind of stage of the rehabilitation i was always a, aware that this might not work and i might not have i might have to have surgery which is actually quite a difficult kind of mindset to be approaching different exercises with especially when you've got quite a competitive uh, unsympathetic physio that's pushing you to do stuff physically <laughs> but um that, that that was really important though that the, the hardest stuff I was doing and the, the hardest I was pushing my body in terms of judging how capable my knee was was in front of you and you were pushing me hard rather than me you set me a, a list of tasks to try and compete and then I go off in a gym and half do them and then come back and go oh yeah I did them um <laughs> It's spot on. I think it's um, really important that I guess when it comes to the later stages of rehab, we really try and get you doing activities that may be potentially harder than anything you'd ever have to do on a soccer pitch there. And if we can get those things going well, that often helps to get people to deal with that psychological battle there in the grand scheme of things. I, I guess it comes, it actually comes to the next question I was going to really have was around mind frame of the 
candidate, how willing they are to to push themselves and how comfortable they are with in the grey, I guess, when, you know, in Australia, over 90% of people, um, perhaps 95 being suggested somewhere, having surgery, how comfortable that person is with being the odd one out and, and pushing their body in ways that um, most people wouldn't without thinking they had an ACL in the knee. <laughs> it, it can certainly be uh, a difficult one there. And then um, on occasions, I've certainly had people where we've had the discussion about the, the merits of trialing non-operative management from an ACL standpoint and seeing where things get on. They'll walk away from the appointment thinking, yep, this is this is fantastic. I think it's absolutely the way to go. But then perhaps from there, they, they might have discussions with, their, with, with other medical practitioners who might not be so aware of the conservative management that's available there or alternatively having a chat with their friends and fellow athletes who also aren't aware of such ways to manage things and that can sometimes erode their confidence. Hmm. So from there, they may disappear off the map for a month or two and then from there come back having had their ACL operative managed, yeah. which isn't necessarily a disaster by a stretch there too, given we do know you, you do also get really good results from a, a, a surgical perspective there too. But um, I guess we also need to be wary that, I guess, surgical management, of course, is not without risk there too. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that in terms of the actual, I guess, pe- a lot of people will, will deem ACL reconstruction surgery as the gold standard, mm-hmm. but it's not a silver bullet in terms of getting you back to playing competitive sport at the same level, right? Like there mm-hmm. are potential complications, there are... It's a long road, and it's a and it is quite a, a challenging thing to to achieve getting back to the same level in in the timeframes that certainly the elite athletes are managing. Yeah, pre- precisely because um I think sometimes the the overall perception of the surgery is it's as something as simple as we take a bit of tissue from elsewhere in the body, we put it into the knee, bang, snap, the ACLs there, off you go, doing all those things there once more. But but realistically, it's something that requires. A, absolute minimum, a good nine months of, of diligent rehab, but realistically in most cases upwards of, of 12 months there. And, and sometimes from a physio perspective, we'll often see in that first three to four months when things are really improving in leaps and bounds from a, from a week-to-week perspective, it's really easy to be motivated. But sometimes I guess when we're finding that last 5%, that last 10%, it can become, it can certainly become a bit more of a grind. And that can be where some people start to, to fall off face the earth for their rehab. I think from memory, from a community sport rehab perspective, after ACL repair, I think it's fewer than two thirds of people actually do end up going back to sport. At all. Yep. Yeah. Because I, I saw some data around less than 50% of people return to the same level. Um within two years um, post-operatively. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't want this to be, you know, neither of us are definitely of this mind frame. Um, we've both, you know, I've been through um, reconstructive surgery and you obviously work with a lot of athletes to do return sports. We're definitely not kind of scaremongering on the perils of, of surgery at all. But it's, it's about, I think, about um, what this conversation will bring is that that balance splits that maybe isn't out there that people should consider um, when making that decision. And and probably what's not happening right now is the pros and the opportunity of non-operative management aren't really being shared. So I think that's probably why we're probably talking about that is um, trying to bring a bit more balance to the conversation that's maybe not out there as much as I think both of us would like to see um, in terms of 
allowing the patient to make the the best decision for them in the context. Um, yeah, I think that's that's spot on. It's not to say that we're we're absolutely on one camp or another camp there, but the the important thing is that um, the decisions that people make should ultimately be as informed as possible, and they know the potential merits or the potential complications of either decision that they make there. Yeah, and you mentioned um, the the challenge with kind of staying on track with your rehabilitation for twelve months is a long time, um, and one of my kind of things that came across my mind when I had my second um prognosis of ACL rupture was oh man I can't do that again that was there was a bit of novelty the first time but the second time as like 12 months of rehab is I mean it was 15 months for me because my ACL all but sorry my MCL all but tore so I was in a brace for three months while that healed before my ACL surgery um (laughs) but um it's such a long road and for me I think one of the real positives was the psychological benefit of pretty soon after i mean as soon as my knee settled down the swelling and had left um but i was able to get back into quite um interesting and and stimulating activity in terms of my rehab like it was bang right now we need to strengthen we're going to make this leg as strong as possible and doing four or five months of that or or, or longer depends entirely depends on the situation is a lot easier for from a um a patient perspective mm-hmm. than knowing you've got 12 months and a lot of those 12 months are particularly in the early stages pretty arduous you know repetitive exercise get the knee straightening and get it bending yeah um <laughs> whereas really what i was i guess i was doing in the gym and, and the way i saw it um was i was pretty much doing the same leg strength sessions that a lot of people just do as their as their pastime you go into the gym get big legs, um, drink your protein shake and come back again a couple of days and repeat that and try and improve your PB and try to get fitter and stronger. Um, and that's a lot more aligned to our natural lifestyle. I think for the, for the modern kind of athlete or amateur athlete, um, to be doing anyway, whereas the, the post-operative stuff is a, is a bit more, I think, psychologically challenging. I think, yeah, it, it can be difficult in the sense that you have that original insult to the knee being the injury there, and then it can be something where, best case scenario, if you're, I guess, getting on the, the, the private health bandwagon there, it can be something where it could be quite a quick turnaround between, I guess, having that original insult and then getting operated on. But then on the flip side, if you're somebody who's going through the public system, sometimes it can be a wait of upwards of six to even sometimes 12 months there to be operated on there in right. the first place. So it's almost like you're often potentially demoted by that, demotivated rather by mm. that original injury to get things going, then only to start things a bit later on, six, 12 months down the line, where it's a really, really deconditioned knee and then having a much bigger amount to climb there later on there too. Yeah. Um, that, that actually leads us quite nicely into what I want to talk about next in terms of what that recovery actually looks like. And I'm, sh- I'm sure a lot of people that um, are considering the non-operative pathway would like to get the understanding of what it really looks like, that that recovery process. From my experience, it's not too much too different to the the second half, the more interesting part of post-operative um, rehabilitation because your knee hasn't had that second. And we'll probably touch on a bit what you mean about that kind of second insult or that second active trauma to your knee which which surgery is considered as mm-hmm. um but in terms of from from that moment that that i present myself with a, with a ruptured acl yeah can you talk us through probably as quickly as you can <laughs> we don't know how long we'll be going <laughs> five months of rehab um 
but what those stages look like in terms of what you're getting a patient to do to get back to to the the point that you need them to be at. Yeah, I guess um, in the, the early stages there, um, I guess when you would have seen me, there was still a relatively swollen and, and puffy knee that was going on there. Often when a knee is unhappy, there's only two things you can really do. It can be in pain or, or it can be swollen. For us, from a swelling perspective, we want to make sure that that's the point where there's really at bare minimum, minimal swelling or ideally no swelling there at all before we start loading the knee with high level exercises. But in those early stages, there's still certainly things that we can get you to do. We do know that, um, for instance, if it was your, your left side that was injured, we can often maintain improved conditioning through the left side by doing activities that work that right side really hard. Um, on top of that as well, we can still often keep things going well from a, from a cardio perspective by getting doing things on the bike, potentially doing things in the pool there as well, but then still doing things to work the muscles that surround the knee as well. So we could work the, the glute of the affected side pretty nicely. We can do things to keep that quad muscle firing as well as possible. We can often do things to work that calf muscle quite nicely as well. Just in that initial process while we wait for the, the swelling to calm itself down. Once that swelling's gone, I think in, in your case, it was quite a quick process. It was probably three to four weeks before things were getting to the point where we could really start pushing things there. That's when we're looking to get into more of those gym-based exercises. So working the quad hard, getting into your squats, getting into your deadlifts, and making sure that we're aiming to get really good symmetry between the the injured side uh, relative to the, the other side there in the grand scheme of things. Then once we're getting to a point where we're getting really good strength through that injured side on the whole, that's where we can start adding in some more impacts. That could be some jumping, it can be some running, trying to get some um, planned movements there on the whole where we know that in straight lines you can move nicely. Then from there, we're looking to incorporate some more change of direction and twisting activities, which for a knee that would otherwise not be feeling overly stable would, would be a problem, which is why we check those previous boxes before then starting to look into more of your unplanned and, and chaotic movements there. So it could be things where you're changing direction without any kind of preconceived planning behind it. I think we had a bit of fun where you were jumping up in the air, we were nudging you in various directions while you're still up in the air to make sure that you could still catch yourself and, and move there accordingly. Once all those things are looking and feeling pretty good, there's there's not much that's holding back from getting into a graduated return of sport and then match play from there too. Yeah, yeah, and that, that played out over the course of um, four and a half months, I think, from the from the moment the injury happened to to returning play my first match back. But even that, we considered kind of still a gradual return to sport in terms. Of, I went into play for our, our Division Two team, held a fair bit back, and and still training the brain up a bit um to be able to get up to speed um which is tough i mean if you if you're a football team train three times a week then it's a bit easier to get that exposure but ultimately um what i found was any pause in the rehab or any kind of um any gaps it was great to keep the the, the building gradual mm -hmm. and then i always kind of had a foundation i was believing right i'm going to do this next thing because i've ticked all the boxes before and um my my temptation was to go, okay, well, my season's nearly ended. I'll just knock it on the head and come back in, in a few months. And um, But I was kind of pushing you <laughs> to let me play the final few games of the season. Um, because psychologically, and that's something we'll, we'll talk about, um, it was pretty challenging to get back on a pitch, put a pair of boots on, go up against your, your teammates and then the opposition, knowing that you don't have an ACL in your knee and that the everything you've been taught from the point of learning about knee structure and it even being called the 
anterior cruciate ligament, which sounds very <laughs> crucial, um, was that you need it and that, um, and that, yeah, without, and probably not that much evidence as well um, of there is athletes out there who have played at ACL, but it, I, I think a lot of it's, it's kind of played down a lot of times or that was a one-off or there was, um, you know, that was a freak athlete that was able to do that. So um, I'm hoping that, you know, my story and and there's a lot of stories of others. I think there's a well, there, there definitely is a Facebook group for uh, non-optive recovery from ACL and uh, meniscus injuries um, with tens of thousands of, of people in it and and thousands of stories of people returning to sport without um, without an ACL. A few bits in that recovery process. The first one you mentioned, I didn't want to stop you right at the start, um, but was about the interesting one about um, so you can't do anything on your injured leg go train your other leg to get super strong and that was a really annoying one because i already knew from my research that i was going to be measured against that leg on my left leg returning to sports so i'm like i could cheat myself here by not really doing this rehab hard <laughs> luckily for me i saw the benefit in that because i had surgery on my right knee so i was like this is a great time actually to spend heaps of time doing single leg work on the the leg which i never probably built back to the full strength for that and this is a, be a really familiar story for most people that have had surgery on a, a knee and gun it's never actually got back to that full strength so i really hammered it in those first few weeks and just focusing on one knee is quite a great way to build strength in something and and really got some you know increased all my pbs massively on that side and was kind of thinking i should have done this <laughs> when i was uh initially injured um but um yeah, that's that's a really interesting one because what well, that trains your keeps your body building strength, and there's a study out there that says that actually encourages muscle growth in the leg that you're not working. That's that's precisely right there. So it, it works well in a couple of different ways, like, like you were saying before, and that um, by doing things to keep that uninjured side in good nick, it gives us more accurate baselines and measurements mm. to work off. And if we're doing things where we're getting those measurements off a leg that's a bit more deconditioned in the grand scheme of things, we may be doing ourselves a disservice in terms of yep. goals and targets to aim for. And while it might be good for short-term you in terms of getting back to sport and doing your thing, the trade-off might be it's not a leg where it truly needs to be. And that can, I guess, increase the risk of a really negative outcome in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Because you're going to be more dependent subconsciously, probably, when you return to sports. Well, that's going to be your almost trusty leg to land on. It, it so it's like a little bit more of a crush. You know, it's a daily stage, shouldn't it? Yeah. Right. And we can do everything we can to challenge that. Mm-hmm. But that leg's going to need to be really solid going into it. And you don't want to be measuring against it. Like you mentioned, a, um, a leg that's not conditioned. Um, and that probably moves on to what that kind of return to sport kind of measurement looks like and I know you and your head physio pretty much seem to really relish the idea of breaking me um, in that final session which I got you know I was like no I want to be tested to the the max before I'm returning to to sport but um what what does what does that look like to a to a listener um how you test that my left leg's up to the task of so uh, I guess the, the main things that we'd look for would be initially looking at muscle strength from two different perspectives. One would be looking, seeing how it was relative to the, the side that wasn't injured there in the first place. But then secondarily, we want to make sure that there's an overall level of strength relative to your size that would be appropriate for your sporting activities that you'd want to get to there. So for instance, from a, a leg press perspective, which I guess the one where you're you're sitting in the machine, where you're pushing a, a plate out and working your, your quad muscles and your glute muscles quite hard, 
We'd ideally want that to be within 10% of your previously uninjured side, or alternatively, the, the more we can more within that guideline, we can get the better. Secondarily, we're, we're probably looking as a good outcome for you to be able to push one and a half times your body weight on that side there too as a, a long-term objective. Otherwise, we're looking at things around the, the other structures in that chain of muscles through your leg and making sure that it's all pulling its weight too. So we look at your calf muscles there, and then we look at other glute muscles that are responsible for helping to keep you level through your hips and otherwise when you're changing directions and doing movements. Once we know that from a strength perspective, things are looking pretty good, we're then also looking at your ability to produce that force really, really quickly. So that could be looking at tasks where you're jumping as far as you can on one leg or alternately doing repeated hops from side to side and making sure you can maintain good control over time. Or alternately on top of that, doing hopping tasks where you're then going forwards while changing direction and seeing how things compare to that other side. If those things are all looking pretty good, you're running at a full speed and you're feeling relatively confident in your leg and your ability to be able to complete those tasks in a sporting setting, that's that's when we're happy for you to go back to sport from a, from a non-surgical pathway. Yeah. So my, my first one that you put me through was um, the triple hot test side to side <laughs> with people leaving treadmills. <laughs> very close to me at that point so that was the person added obstacles for you there <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um yeah i think i think i'd maybe slightly beat my right side and my left side on that one yes the, the triple hop you you definitely beat that other side there with the, yeah. with the crossover and then i think also the um the the lateral hops so where you were doing the repeat yeah. side to side hops on that left hand side you also had some orangeed side too that is so tough. There was some serious grimacing going on at the end of those tests. There, yeah, thirty like, seconds of that. <laughs> yeah, or wait, when your fitness isn't where it, you know, because that is one of the big challenges when you're not able to kind of compete is your fitness mm-hmm. obviously drops off regardless of how much time you spend an exercise bike or jogging, mm-hmm. um, or even once you get back to sprinting without pushing yourself in a competitive environment. I find particularly it's completely different. So anaerobically and it was probably almost more the challenge which is a good sign i guess like yeah. if you're blowing so hard but your legs still able to do it jumping side to side so two lines on the ground and you've got to clear those lines jumping side to side so i'd never done before and would um uh, and what we'll come on to next is the kind of preparation stuff that is good to avoid being in this situation and um put you out of business by having no that's why by getting people to prepare their bodies so, and, it, and it's a huge thing, particularly, you know, in the, the rise and, and wonderful success of the professionalism of the women's game yes. is the increase in um, ACL injuries um, and how we, and I, I know a lot of studies are going into how or why it's happening particularly prevalently in the women's game. I think in, in football, it's been kind of loads of numbers fly around but around about five times more likely to happen for for a female athlete playing football um and while we still figure out the why we st- i think the most important thing is actually how do we prevent in any way prepare people's bodies better so i want to talk a bit about the exercise that you'd encourage people to be doing um to avoid um Injury or obviously re-injury. They're the sort of stuff that we prepare for or we work on in the in the rehab um, space. 
Of course. So I guess in your your, your football and, and soccer sphere, there appears to be a lot of weight that's placed in having a, a really good warm up. And we're not just considering that just from the perspective of warming up your body's core temperature, getting your muscles moving, those kinds of things, which certainly has merits there in itself. But um, the, the way the, the FIFA 11 plus warm up there is set up is it's often building skills to be able to land well, change direction well, and um, I guess build good control through your, your joints and muscles there on the whole. I think there was a study that was looking at it in Division 1 soccer players there that looked at the provision of the FIFA 11 plus and its impact on overall ACL injury risk. And I think they found it reduced the, the rate of ACL injuries by up to 77% there. Wow. So that's that's pretty phenomenal there in yeah. itself. Of course, it's not as simple as doing this warm up and all, all your problems will be fixed there. But I think if we're doing things that looks to build good movement skills, but then on top of that, maintain good strength through your quads and your hips and your calf muscles there i think that can enable those structures to be able to absorb force well when i guess changing direction or doing high level tasks there yeah, yeah. so there's a there's a few things and it, it can be tough i guess for you warm up we encourage not we i don't know influence over his <laughs> coaching manuals um but you'd probably want to encourage your coach right to be across this and because you normally do your warm-up for a game right as a team yeah. So there's there'll be certain exercises, I guess, that you can take from that independently or mm. hope that your coach is, is across that. Um, in terms of adding stuff to your own kind of out-of-sport training, it's a few bits that I've kind of picked up. So obviously the big part of the rehab as well was, um, and I'd say the, probably the, the two most crucial ones that I've added, not added, but I really focus on um, for my um, quad strength is leg extension machine obviously you no know, brain for most people in football anyway mm-hmm. and also just that more single leg press mm-hmm. single leg squats all that work and to focus that a bit more on the knee is doing that on an angled kind of there's a lot of me find in a gym now unfortunately so you put those <laughs> the wedge in and do your squats on that and that puts a bit more strain on the or focus on the knee anyway, right? Yeah, that can absolutely load things up a bit more as a, a general rule if we're looking to load up the quads more. The, the further your knees go forwards past your toes there, it can increase that quad loading and that knee loading there, yeah. which isn't inherently a bad thing. Um, sometimes we get concerned about overloading by doing things in certain ways, but um, ACLs being a great example of this, the, the body is a, a wonderfully adaptive structure, whereas if we provided the, the right environment to get stronger and get better at certain movement patterns, it can deal with a lot of what we throw at it on a day-to-day basis really nicely. Yeah, and if we're protecting our bodies from doing that, I think that's pr- probably been a something that historically has been, you know, the knees over toes guy has, has made a, a business out of challenging that perception that we should not load over our knees when training, because we definitely do when we play sport, like when you decelerate, um, is that, yeah, replicating as much of those exercises that are going to um, happen inevitably when you play sport. Um, the other one I, I've added is the reverse sled pull. Yeah. So the weights on, really hammer the your quads around your knee, get them nice and strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a great kind of cardio one, particularly while you're you're rehabbing as well. Because I'm very controlled, but um, right. yeah, you do it, push it, and then pull it, and you'll be pretty knackered after. It'd be a pretty nasty exercise at the best of times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I've got quite a cold gym because if you're sweating pretty good, but that that's a great one whilst whilst rehabbing or to add in, I think as um, a 
prehab exercise and that we won't go too much into we could we could drain a few hours talking about calves because i know that's that's one of your passion pieces and what i originally came to see you about was my mm-hmm. calf injury that i'd seen a few other physios and probably what helped me recover from that and the reason why i returned to you for the the acl injury is because you were very much um progressive in terms of looking at what the current research is out there and challenging the idea that go for a jog for a bit longer and gradually and you'll get a stronger calf was really that that strength-based um building but building your calves to protect your knees is also a really valuable one right in terms of taking that load off there's certainly the value of it there in the grand scheme of things and that i guess um if we're thinking we're running tasks and other movements one of your things that your calf can help to do is that we don't only think of its ability to help you push off and get up on your tiptoes but i guess when you're planting or cutting or doing other tasks there that calf can also assist in making sure less load goes for the knees it creeps forwards there as well too so um i think it's easy to be a bit reductionist in terms of saying, oh, it's all about quads or it's more about calves there. But um, I guess it shows the value of getting everything working nicely together to, to make life easier for that knee joint. Yeah. yeah. The more you can spread the load in absorbing um, that strain. And a lot of, I know, skiing, ACL injuries, right? Mm-hmm. Calf is isolated or removed from supporting the knee, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder there's no coincidence in that so many people rupture their ACLs when locked into skis because their calves can't absorb the... There, there can be an element of that and combined, I guess, with mm. either going off ridiculous moguls or landing for pretty impressive heights there as well. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> Jumping off a mountain, um, fairly inherent. We can't, we can't blame the, the calves' inability to prevent that one. That can, can certainly play a role there too, nonetheless. <laughs> um, going back to the, the kind of broader perspective on this, I, I'm kind of, I kind of get the sense from speaking to a few different physios and a few people in the area that there is a growing shift in the industry of being considering non-operative mm-hmm. care. Is that is that a sense that you're getting from being within the physio sector itself? There is more and more physios that are coming around to this thing and it's saying that patients will be... It certainly tends to be something that's getting a, a bit more traction there in, in recent years. I think we're probably a little bit better in terms of incorporating the person involved with the decision-making process and that um, a lot of people who do injure their ACLs, they're not necessarily looking to get back to high-level sport or things along those lines there. So that certainly opens the door to more discussions around non-operative management, which uh, the person in front of us is is certainly open to there. I think secondarily, um, probably something that's a bit more of a hot area debate there recently has been um, discussions around ACL bracing and the potential for the need to heal there on its own. It's um, something that's come out in uh, the last couple of months formally by um, Tom Cross and his group there. It's the idea that if the ACL injury is in the correct spot and the there's absence of any significant meniscal injury there or really, really significant ligamentous injuries there, we can potentially lock that ACL in at a certain position at the knee. And then by giving it time to heal and be offloaded for a period of time, there's a really high percentage that can knit together quite nicely, at which point in time no operation is required and we can start getting into a relatively straightforward rehab program to get someone back into sport from there. Yeah. yeah. And that that's all about increasing the chances, not necessarily the only way you can naturally heal right, because there hasn't been 
there have certainly been cases where people have gone about their day-to-day activities and not raced up or done yep. anything differently, and they, they have come together on their own, yes. Yep. And there was the rugby player, Rich Short, who ruptured ACL, returned, made his debut for the Waratahs, I think, after a few weeks after <laughs> ruptured ACL, and... Yeah, pretty much ignored all the the protein. Didn't ignore, but made it. Uh, there's there's a good podcast worth listening to on his story with actually the the team doctor and how they made that decision. And a year later, um, he had a MRI and it showed that the ACL had actually healed without any bracing. Just gone back to the activity. Pretty pretty wild stuff, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess it's like, how wild is it though? When he's he'll be a rare example of having an MRI a year after or any period after rupture normally you get an MRI as soon as you rupture ACL right mm-hmm. then no one's actually checking to see if the MRI is healed typically anyway right so I won't be offered a another MRI scan <laughs> I'm six months post injury now and I'd quite like to know but that won't be you know won't be bulk build in Australia to, to get another MRI scan this is the, the absence of evidence is probably the question is it it seems wild to us but because we don't really have too much to compare to, right? I think there have been a couple of small-scale studies that have looked at long-term MRI healing rates mm. there, but admittedly, I'm not 100% across them there. Yeah. Um, it could be something I had to dig around and, and shoot you across there later on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think in one of the studies, it was around about 30% had showed evidence of of healing um, over that, but definitely encourage people to do their own research. And, and there is a lot of studies out there. I think when I first came into the... Um, well, came back into your, your clinic. Um, one of the things stopped me, you're only the second person that's ever come in and cited the Canon trial to me. <laughs> that's probably having a, a knee nerd in the in the room. I mean, I, I used to be a sports journalist, so I'm always interested in, in kind of getting the most information around something and, and learning it, about it um, before kind of making a decision or what I would have been before writing about it, but now actually having to make that decision. Um, so there are, I definitely encourage like people to to read up around that and the other bit is and what i wanted to kind of take us on to was was the referral process and and the bit that probably really piqued my interest was the scandinavian and the dutch models around how they actually refer a patient from the point of having their scan and then um they're not immediately so when i went to the the doctors um to get my mri MRI results. Um, first thing he'd done, exactly the same as my previous one, was told me I had a ruptured ACL and um, said, um, here's um, a card of a orthopedic surgeon, yep. um, so you can book an appointment, you'll probably be able to see him within four weeks. And um, But then kind of slots in the wind, you've only done your ACL, by the way, so you could return to sport in a few weeks. <laughs> I was like, sorry, what? Uh, so what, why why did you give me a surgeon's card to start with? And um, what again now? <laughs> and uh, a few weeks is obviously a bit, probably didn't do you any favors in terms of setting my expectations up, but um, that really started the conversation for me. But long-winded way of taking us into the, the fact that in, in Scandinavia is typically they would get the MRI results and then they'd be sent to have three months of rehabilitation and then have MRI and be tested to see if they needed surgery rather than have surgery and never consider. 
an operative. Yeah, it typically tends to be far, far less common in Scandinavia having your operative management for ACL. Often the decision-making process is perhaps if they're a high-level athlete and looking to return to pivoting sports. Still more of the focus is towards having operative management there. But with that being said, if it's someone who's more of a recreational athlete or someone who's a non-athlete there, the, the standard premise tends to be having a good bout of extended rehab of at least three or so months before then reviewing and seeing how things are changed, if there's any ongoing instability or issues with, with swelling or things just really not quite feeling right, that can be where surgery can be thrown into the mix. But um, the, the vast majority of people who do get themselves injured from an ACL point of view in Scandinavia often don't end up having surgery there at all. Yeah, I, I never trust this figure when I hear it, but I heard that around about 50% of people don't have surgery in Scandinavia. I know that they have a different health system model. Um, although, you know, we're still on the, you know, it's still costing money <laughs> in Australia and in the UK where ACL reconstruction rates still about 90% the same as in the US where I think it was estimated ACL reconstructions um, alone amounts to the cost of 7.2 billion. Um, so, um, and yeah, we, we won't get into kind of the, that too much because I think it lo loses a bit of value. Like ultimately, we want to make the best decision for a patient, regardless of money. Right, they should be making. They can make that decision based on their own kind of um, situation. We really want to. You know, I certainly want to take the conversation on from a um, perspective of what's best to get your body returning to activity quickest, which for me was was the normative pathway. Um, Oh, do, do, so do you, do you think that people should be referred to a, a physio first or should it again depend on their actual, I know I mentioned if it's bucket handle mm -hmm. tear, then yeah, a surgeon's probably the right place for them. But do doctors need to have a bit of a better understanding of who should be referred to a physio and who should be referred to a surgeon rather uh -huh. than this black and white ACL rupture surgeon? It's... It's a really good question there, ultimately, and that I think if it is something where it is an isolated ACL tear mm. and everything else is is looking pretty good, I think there can be some discussions around that referral going directly to a physio. Uh, at that point in time, we could discuss more about the, the person, individual goals and expectations and, and what they're looking to do. I feel like a lot of the time, well, that's, that's probably an exaggeration, some of the time, it may not be totally necessary for a surgeon to be involved in the get-go. Because like, like we said previously, it's not something where we have to decide on non-operative management. And once that decision's made, we, we can't necessarily go back and have things operated on there. What we'd be considering is we could trial a period of strengthening, seeing how things change. If things go well, ultimately fantastic. We can involve any or avoid any operative management there. But I guess with that being said, if we do some strengthening, things don't still don't feel quite right. There haven't been any significant further episodes of instability there. Mm. We can still go down that operative pathway and realistically still have better outcomes than rushing into surgery there alone. Yeah. Um, in terms of, we, we talked about the benefits of, of um, people going down the normative pathway in terms of quick return sport, quicker, um, yeah, a bit more, more engaging kind of activities. Um, from a, a, one of the challenges that people will be facing if, if they have had an ACL 
diagnosis and excellent both is the mental health aspect of it um i read another stat and again this is not a stat to be followed because i read it on a social media post from another physiotherapy company but it popped up and i found it interesting and you know didn't cite the sources but um it doesn't surprise me at all that i think 40 plus percent people who suffer an acl rupture uh, experience some sort um some sort of psychological um or mental health challenges along that process a really long process to be away from an activity you absolutely love and um do you think that we kind of need to be doing a bit more to support athletes during that i think there's certainly more more that can be done there often in the elite sports setting it's pretty commonplace that when something like this happens there's a a pretty quick smart referral to the team psych or an external psych who can 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 assist to, to manage those kinds of things but um, I guess from the community perspective, it's certainly something that could be considered better given um, a lot of people, even in a community sports setting, they may identify as an athlete and it's something where all of a sudden, thing, all of a sudden something along these lines has happened so quickly, you can kind of lose that self-perception of that identity of being an athlete and that can really have really negative psychological consequences there so i think it's something where it's either something as physios and clinicians it's important for us to, to check in and see how people are coping with that adjustment there in the short term yeah and if the red flags are things that aren't quite looking quite right or they are struggling making sure they have got an appropriate support network or, or referring out but um, yeah, I, I agree. Those stats are certainly quite alarming and it's something that we really should be having a, a more holistic approach and, and considering those aspects as well. Yeah. Well, hopefully by kind of empowering patients to have a bit more kind of influence on their own, own decision, because it's obviously very disempowering. Mm-hmm. You have an ACL rupture that instantly kind of the, the perception is that um, you're pretty much years done of your of your athletic life and and that's you're kind of mourning that yeah. for a while so um definitely encourage people to, to kind of reach out for support and that might not necessarily be the friends and family because it's quite tough for them to kind of understand empathize it's not an injury that's really perceived mm-hmm. as bad as you know breaking a leg or an arm which you might recover from in weeks but actually being out for it from a year of saying you you love it really challenging which i, I think is i think it is a really important part of the conversation about your choice and whether you want to um try and not to recover if, it, if it's on the table for you and that your your leg does feel stable is because you're giving yourself the best chance and you take kind of ownership of your mm-hmm. your journey there um but obviously having a a really good physio who who is an expert in um the injury recovery is is probably the biggest part is there anything else that you think that you as a um as a physiotherapist would want do do you need to see more kind of um studies done into because i sense you're still still a degree of hesitancy about particularly for people that want to play competitive sport Mm -hmm. and pivoting sport about not pushing down that pathway but encouraging them to consider it Is is there more evidence that you need to see like looking into the future in 10 years what would you want to be out there for you to really confidently one way or the other Mm -hmm. um approach the subject can be really difficult ultimately from a, a research perspective to see how things go at the elite level. And then mm. I guess if we're thinking of, say, Premier League footballers that are getting paid hundreds of thousand pounds a week there, 
I guess the benefit could be if things go to plan and it's a really smooth rehab process and, and things go well. We see uh, Aludiharas, but I come back and was at seven or eight weeks there in, mm. in the grand scheme of things where it can be a big positive. But I, I guess the, the trade-off is if things don't go to plan, if there's any secondary insults or injuries to the cartilage or surrounding ligaments there as well too, can that not just necessarily restart that process of requiring surgery and getting things up and running again over that nine to 12 month process. But then secondarily, can that have, I guess, career altering negative consequences there as well? Whereas on the flip side, if we are looking at things from a surgical management standpoint, it's relatively tried and true. We know that it is that typically an elite level guaranteed nine to 12 month process until things are feeling pretty good and ready to go there once more. So is it something where at the elite level, whether we we have more unique contract situations? I think Aludiar, I think he was coming towards the end of his contract there at that yep. point in time. And I think he needed to make sure that he was ready to go for his team in hopes of getting more opportunity. But hopefully you can you can track him down at some stage and, yeah, well, and hear things in the horse's mouth as well. That, <laughs> that is one of our objectives. And I think, you know, to help the, the physio industry the surgical industry um, and help this conversation be a bit more open and, and voices heard is we want to get hold of Alo Diara, who um, <laughs> is, to our knowledge, the only player to play in the Premier League without an ACL um, and did so returning, having closed behind closed doors games eight weeks after rupturing his ACL, mm-hmm. lady in the Premier League. Um, we don't know, of, haven't heard of any instance of him having surgery i believe he's coaching under 19's team in france at the moment so if you can help us get hold of aludiara that that's <laughs> really going to be would would be a wonderful um voice to have a, a, a learning because i think that's probably what we're lacking right now is mm-hmm. examples other than me <laughs> there's not too many there's not enough documented cases of, of people returning to sport without an acl but we know it all that it can happen it's that difficult thing in terms of um is absence of evidence necessarily meaning any evidence that things don't don't work i think it's something where we we certainly hear stories and cases where things go well but um, until we have that really high quality research of people of all, all levels there, it can be difficult to make that that uniform recommendation there that, that non-operative management's the way to go. Yep. Yeah. Okay, well, I really appreciate your, your time, Rick. As always, I've taken up too much of it, as I did with every single physio appointment, <laughs> but in my interest, it got me back to sport quicker and hopefully for listeners, it's helping them make a, a more balanced decision when it when it comes to deciding what they're going to do post an ACL rupture injury. Um, thank you for having me, Tim. It's a pleasure as always. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC. And when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Caram. Tune in and enjoy. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Don't worry. About a thing Cause Atticus Health Will make you feel alright If you got a tummy ache 
Oh, you don't feel right. Oh, or if you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night. Don't worry, don't worry about, about a thing. Don't worry. Because <laughs> Atticus' health will make you feel alright. 